I mean, if there was a thesis for subject matter for Bell and Sebastian, I think this song is it. It's no more perfect. <laughs> yeah. It's like he literally wandered into his little sister's room and read her diary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, give our in-depth opinions, deep dives, and tell you at the end whether or not you think this is really an album you must listen to before you die. Very excited this week. We are going to do an album that... I came to a little later, but I think is a, you know, a, a pretty seminal work of indie pop. It is Bell and Sebastian's If You're Feeling Sinister. Now, in just a moment, we are going to do our introductions, do our encapsulated tweet-length reviews, listen to a little bit of one of the tracks before we do some deep dives on individual tunes. But first, I am actually going to throw it over to Rob, who is going to reach his hand into that fan mail bag and pull out some gems to share with us again this week. So, Rob, take it away. Yeah, I wanted to share with the group. We had listener Matt writing in about the Thelonious Monk episode, and they pointed out, and I actually fact-checked this step. I thought it was interesting to bring up. Listener Matt writes, Monk being the second most recorded jazz composer is actually much crazier than you guys made it out to be. The context, recall, is that the number one recorded jazz composer is Duke Ellington. Except the difference is that Duke Ellington wrote something like 1,700 songs in his life, whereas Monk only wrote 60 in total. So it's completely insane to think that he would be number two. So like every single one of his songs has been re-recorded by somebody. Was huge, yeah. Basically, yes. So just just wanted crazy. to get that out there, yeah. And, I, and like I said, I, I did fact check it to the best of my ability. And in fact, I I came up with a list on the internet that said Duke Ellington wrote something closer to three thousand songs. So it's it's Jeez. some high number. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I would. I thought that you were going to talk about the length of careers or something like that because I know Duke got to start earlier than Thelonious and and played until the seventies basically. But uh, yeah, just the overall body of work that's pretty insane. Listener Matt, well done. Thank you. Yeah, I, I I appreciate the fact that he liked what we had to say enough to actually write in and make a comment for somebody who is obviously so much more learned about jazz than we are. <laughs> yes. Constructive. I agree. Constructive. Yes. This is how you do it, listeners. <laughs> yes. Thank you. All right. So, like I said, this week we are diving into the 1996 release off of Jeepster Records. Matador Records in the U.S. It's Bell and Sebastian's If You're Feeling Sinister. So just as a quick introduction to what we have been listening to this week, we are going to play a snippet of the title track, not the opening track, but the title track from this album, If You're Feeling Sinister, and then we shall give our little encapsulated review. So take it away with Bell and Sebastian's If You're Feeling Sinister. Hillary went to the Catholic Church because she wanted information. Vicar or whatever took her to one side and gave her confirmation. Saint 
Teresa's calling her The church up on the hill is looking lovely But it didn't interest The only thing she wants to know Is how am I and when and where to go How am I and when and where to follow How am I and when and where to go why and when and where to follow But if you are feeling sinister Go off and see a minister He'll try in vain to take away The pain of being a hopeless unbeliever La 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 Alright, excellent, excellent Hope everybody is familiar with that. If not, don't worry about it. We're going to go through the album almost in its entirety. I think we're going to hit seven of the ten tracks on this album. So, Yeehaw. Um, first things first, we're going to get our quick impressions. And I am going to throw it over to the person who I am the most interested to find out what they thought about it. I'm going to throw it over to Adam. Adam, take it away. Sure. Hey, this is Adam. And I really wanted to hate this album. And I do. <laughs> Okay. It's <laughs> good. You had us yeah. on the edge there. You did. You did. I really was like, smile on my face. Oh. Did, did the feed go out? Yeah, Something happened. Great. Okay. First incorrect opinion of the day. Rob, take it away. <laughs> so I wrote that the melodies are bouncy and memorable. The vibe is comfortable and witty. But the mixing decisions could be best described as haphazard. Fair enough. We'll, we'll talk maybe why that's an artifact of how they got together as a band. But either way, so this is Tom. I'm going to throw out my encapsulated tweet-length review. Um, I did not listen to Bell and Sebastian until I was in my 20s, and I find it odd that music that was obviously written for depressed teenage girls really spoke to me so much in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it it is definitely... Yes, I, I wrote something like Oof. that, too. It is definitely written from the perspective of, of a pre-adolescent girl in 1970s Scotland or something. It's like, yeah. why am I relating to this? <laughs> Potentially struggling with her sexuality or something like right. that, or just the concept right. of sexuality in general. It's, yeah. It, so we're going to talk a little bit about Bell and Sebastian, a little background of them. So this is their second album. Uh, it was released in 1996, as I said, uh, November 18th of 1996. Interestingly, their first album, Tiger Milk, was released June 6th, 1996, just a scant five months before If You're Feeling Sinister came out. And both of those albums are on Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Really? I tried my damnedest to find another album pairing by the same artist with less time in between that both made it to the list. I think this is the shortest time span between two works that both made it to the list, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. That almost has to, that means it might as well have been a double album. Most likely, right. That in in the sense that the songs were probably all of a piece and they, they might've had different recording sessions or something, but they just broke them up somewhat arbitrarily. Right. Well, Sort of, yes. Basically, the band got its start. First of all, we'll talk about who is Bell and Sebastian. Bell and Sebastian consist of Stuart Murdoch, 
lead vocals and guitar. Then there's Stuart Davis on bass. Can you tell that they're Scottish or two Stuarts already? Isabel <laughs> Campbell on cello. Chris Geddes on keys. Richard, Richard Colburn on drums. Stevie Jackson on guitar. Sarah Martin on violin. And Mick Cook on trumpet. That is right. They are an octet, which you would not have <laughs> wow. guessed that they're an octet. From the amount you of sound that happens guess. on this. Yeah, you, you would, would not, not guess. guess. Yeah, you, you think you're thinking, listen to this record, maybe it's the work of one instrumentalist, like one of those guys who's using yeah. his foot for the drum that's strapped to his back. <laughs> yeah, he's got the uh, what, the Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins one-man band right. thing going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, sorry. No, yeah, before we go deeper into it, I wanted to say that the, the context for me, I'm, I'm a I'm a fan of this band. I got to this band in the right around the year 2000, maybe so in college, and but I feel like they were one of the last mysterious bands, even in the age of the internet. The there were never any pictures of them on their records, at least back in the day, and it was hard. I just remember it being hard to find information out about them. They just they just seemed mysterious in a way that. Maybe it's because they weren't on MTV or something, but I remember thinking for a while, I wasn't sure who this person was that had this really strange and unique voice and warbly voice. Was this a woman? Was it a man? You know, it's like I was a little unsure. That is on purpose. They, when they got their recording contract with Jeepster Records to make their second album, they stipulated in the clause that they were not going to release singles. They were not going to do any press. There's not going to be any promotional events. They were not going to appear in promotional materials, which is pretty demanding for a band that just got its start. So we'll actually talk a little bit about how they formed. So that that cracks me up, by the way. I'm Just from a business standpoint, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure people don't hear us. There was this band Including at, in keep Canada. the volume remarkably <laughs> low. There, there was this band uh, uh, that I listened to, or maybe around the same time, from Canada called Moxie Fruvis. And when they, when they were asked why they picked the name Moxie Fruvis, they jokingly said, well, it doesn't mean anything and nobody knows. Uh, damn it. Hang on. Let me think about it. Hang on. I'm going to have to come back to that. All right. We'll cut that shit. <laughs> I, was, I was happy you brought up Moxie Fruvis because I was thinking that in the moment I, when we were recording an episode with James, I can't remember which episode it was that James was on. He referenced Moxie Fruvis. No and way. I didn't catch it in the episode. But then when I was going back and listening and making the playlists, I realized he was referencing a Moxie Fruvis song. So I put it on. I, I finally remember what they said. It was, uh, it's hard to remember and it doesn't mean anything. Mm. Those are the two things you want in a band name. <laughs> Is this why Adam, back in the day, we picked the band name Gellner for our band? <laughs> impossible to remember spelled wrong constantly didn't mean anything yeah gel wrench gel wrench gel nod oh god i uh i like by the way the the fact that adam you are into moxie for james is also into moxie for because my mental tag for them has always been like are they might be giants too cool for you listen to moxie (laughs) for Dude, that is so true. That is perfect. That should definitely be on their website. All right, we're going to jump back into Bell and Sebastian for a minute. We're not going to turn this into a Moxie Fervis slash They Might Be Giants. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. So 
basically they started out Stuart Murdoch, lead vocals and guitar. He is the driving influence behind the band. Without him, there's nothing, basically. He wrote all of the songs. He defined the sound of the band early on. And he was in Glasgow performing solo works for a long time, had a bunch of solo stuff. He ended up hooking up with the bass player, Stuart David, and they both joined. The local college had a... uh, (laughs) They had a, a program for unemployed musicians. It was called the Beatbox Program for Unemployed Musicians. <laughs> so it was for all musicians. <laughs> Basically all musicians, yes. So it was through this uh, Stowe College. And uh, Rob, I think it's essentially what we did through that recording college expressions where we, when we were back in the chop, wanted to record an album. We didn't want to pay for it. And so we would go at what, like it was like eight o'clock at night to four o'clock in the morning and we would record and it would be students working the gear so they got access to a live band we got free studio time i think it was one of those kind of kind of deals um yeah they end up recording a demo it actually ended up being released later that dog on wheels album was the demo that they recorded for that sort of beatbox program and then somebody from the uh the college had a music business program and that music business program actually had a record label associated with it called electric honey records and every year they would pick one artist and they would make a single for them and release it on their record label and stewart's the the two stewart's ended up submitting it and basically got accepted put together the band they make an entire album for them because they basically, we already have all these songs written. Let's just record an entire album. Over three days, they record this album, Tiger Milk, which ends up being their kind of breakout hit. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, Bell and Sebastian, I feel like in the nerdy music world are somewhat of a almost household name. But if you look at it, they had barely any success when it came to u.s charts specifically so they released tiger milk like i said june 1996 uh it hit number 13 on the uk charts like 68 in france didn't chart in the u.s but pretty successful hit number 13 on the charts with essentially like a completely bootstrapped album they go ahead and get a record deal with jeepster records and again, I mentioned earlier that in the U.S. they were actually released on Matador Records. And Adam, I don't know if you had this experience. Rob, I think you might have had this experience of buying back in the day. You'd go to like Borders or The Wall or something and buy these CDs that were just the Matador Records oh, CD yeah. from a particular year. And it was like a bunch of different samplings uh, of, yep. of artists that they put out that year. Mm-hmm. That was some of my earliest introductions to any Bell and Sebastian stuff was on uh, the Matador record stuff. And then later on, Rob actually put it on a CD mix that he made for me, one of the songs off of this album. And I, you know, I liked it. It was okay. But it took a while to grow on me. So I'm not exactly shocked, Adam, that you don't like this album. Yeah, I'm not shocked either. Time. <laughs> I don't think it's the, especially re-listening this week, it's not the easiest thing in the world to like. It came to me through, you guys are going to mind blown here, a woman. And, you know, (laughs) I think it's the same woman who introduced me to Elliot Smith, by the way. And they're in a weird way. They're both in this low key, lo fi kind of camp Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. But you are right. They're they're popular without being popular, which is always uh, of some fascination. Mm -hmm. That said, Matador Records in the U.S., for people that don't know, I mean, look up the, the records they put out. They are one of the most successful indie labels of the last 
30 years, they put out, all, I think, a bunch of the Yola Tango records. They put out all the new pornographers, AC Newman stuff. Like, those comps had great, great tunes on them. Yeah, really a nice smattering of different types of music too and yeah i, I thought yeah. that that was i think they folded right matador records i don't believe is around anymore maybe they were reconstituted under the same name but i think all the original people are no longer with matador or maybe that happened before this i, don't, I know that matador had some problems at some point it's definitely possible i even as i was saying those band names i realized they weren't nearly as successful as like merge records who put out arcade fire or sub pop who was associated with sure. nirvana but they're in that orbit of cool Definitely, definitely. So, you know, they get their record contract through Jeepster, and they go on to put this album together, If You're Feeling Sinister. They release it, like I said, only five months later. And it doesn't sell as well as their first album did. Um, Oh, wow. It only hit 191 on the UK charts. I thought you were going to say a record sold. (laughs) No, 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 no. But, I mean, if you look at, like, where it was the most successful, it so it didn't chart in Australia, it didn't chart in Austria, didn't chart in France, didn't chart in Germany, didn't chart in Ireland, didn't chart in the Netherlands. It reached 23rd on the Norwegian charts, didn't chart in the U.S., didn't chart in Sweden, Switzerland, any place like that. Basically, 191 in the U.K., 23rd on the Norwegian charts. However, it has gone on to be lauded as one of the best albums of the 90s. On multiple lists, it is list that is being hugely influential like rolling stone said it was one of the top 100 albums of the 90s um there was like a top 200 albums from like uh 95 to 2005 and it was like in the 50s on that one it, it has become influential outside of its overall selling because it only ended up going gold so this is not something that even really caught on hugely later on but it it's one of those things that it's been related to uh, I'm going to cringe before I say this. People say that they compare them <laughs> to the Smiths because it's the every band that you like liked this band that's, listened to this band. That's funny because, oh, okay, from from that aspect because there were a couple songs in here where I definitely heard a Morrissey thing going on. In, in you mean the, squeaker kind of notes? Vo- oh. <laughs> it, well, yeah, his vocal styling is, there were just a couple key spots where I was like, oh, I, I, could, I could hear that, that comparison in there. It's that UK malaise. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't particularly like that comparison. One of the things that I think separates a Morrissey slash the Smiths from Stuart Murdoch, Bell and Sebastian is this album has no guile whatsoever. It is not even trying to be clever. There's not a lot of turns of phrases. It is stark and it is very exposed. I, I feel like they really kind of say pretty directly what they're talking about most of the time and they cover the issues that they are getting at i feel like in a way that uh, comes across without like the f- lack of guile is one thing lack of bravado certainly an entire definitely. lack of bravado on this okay definitely place. that i was gonna say i think the lyrics are attempting to be clever and and it succeed at times yeah, and it's certainly melancholy i think the biggest thing that separates them and the and the best thing about this band the reason Let's not bury the lead. The reason to go through the process of liking Bell and Sebastian, Adam, and anyone else who may be listening who doesn't like them is their melodies are top-notch. They are top-notch yes. melody I, writers. Yeah, you're, you're going to chip away at me here on, on this episode. I, I already know it because as I was I was getting ready for tonight's episode, I had the, well, I don't know if it's a chorus because this album has no choruses. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it was the melody on the opening track, the uh, stars of the track. Uh, what is it stars called? of track and field. stars of track yeah. and field that I had that kind of kicking around in my head, and I was like, God damn it! They worm it your catchy. way in. They they, 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 really they do. do. Yeah, they really, really do. do. So, Rob, when you initially introduced me to Bell and Sebastian, I, at the time, was listening to like a lot of fish and a lot of jam bands and a lot of hip-hop. And all of them had, in their own way, some bravado to them. And this just came across to me as limp noodle, no bravado. And I was not super into it. And I remember there was a girl that I was so obsessed with. God, I was obsessed with this girl. <laughs> and I got a chance to hang out with her like one time at her house and I saw that she had a Bell and Sebastian record. And I was like, you listen to Bell and Sebastian? <laughs> and she was kind of like, yeah, they're great. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I listened to way cooler. I'm going to shock you guys here. Unsuccessful and unrequited attempts to, to, uh, to get this girl to like me. But uh, it's funny because I think within a year, I was a complete convert and actually really liked Bell and Sebastian. And if they had, I always think that Rob, if you just made that mix for me a year before, maybe, <laughs> oh, it's maybe. my fault. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely hundred <laughs> percent your fault. Hundred percent your fault. Um, yeah, they're they're very they lack masculinity, is what I yes. want to say. I mean, I, I mean yeah. it in a neutral sense, but they, sure, yeah, it's it's fake. I mean, coming in coming in completely raw, I just felt like I was stuck in a college coffee shop on a Saturday night because a coworker begged me to come watch his band and his girlfriend's in the band and she can't really play violin or recorder and you're there and you're kind of looking at your watch like, oh my God, another song that like goes nowhere. That was the headspace I was in this week. I have a problem with the statement that these songs go nowhere. I think these songs are lilting and they do give me a sense of kind of bouncy and being all over the place. Yeah. These melodies are undeniable. Undeniable melodies. Uh, the, the, the melodies are undeniable, but I felt like the album, so the very opening track does this thing where it has like a buildup, mm -hmm. right? And then it doesn't, it never like, goes anywhere it's like a up and then it's i wrote down the peak down. i wrote I also, down yeah, the peak I, of the I, song I, really? I think we also have the oh. same peak when he goes up for when she's on her back yep yeah it's great it's perfect anyway let's all save right, the, right. let's save the talk about specific tracks but it's a this. very yeah but what they, they do that a few times a version of that and but it's a very subtle version of a peak because the band never gets to any serious level of loudness they're just so reserved in everything they do yeah yeah, yeah. you could be playing this at a this could be playing at a, in like a, a nice restaurant. This whole band, all eight of them, could be on stage and playing in a nice restaurant. It wouldn't disrupt. And your you're talking normally. Yeah, it disrupt right. your conversation. <laughs> I should. We should say. I mean, I, Tom, have you seen these guys? I've seen these guys a couple times live, and but it was in the later period. It was you know post two thousand five, and where they had kind of filled out their sound a little more. I think they were probably still the same eight people, but they sounded more like a traditional band. You know, they had a record called Dear Catastrophe Waitress that I listened to a bunch. If you throw that on, that'll sound much more like traditional 60s pop. I still think they have a great sense of melody and they retain those aspects. But the sonic nature of the band, I'd say, shifted pretty drastically after the first three albums. Hmm. Yeah, I got, okay. I got the sense from... If you're feeling sinister, also Boy with the Arab Strap, they're moving a little bit more in that direction, but it is like the couple of mics in a room, people playing, and not close mic drums, not close, you know, like close mic bass amp and stuff, like DI going yeah. in. It sounds a little bit more professional. As you're, you're right, Dear Catastrophe Waitress sounds like an album almost that any other band could have made, which is why I like that album, but 
there is something hmm, I don't know. I have a longing for these first couple of albums. Yeah, because they I no, I agree. Down. These these songs have the most charm to to my mind from yeah. th- spattered throughout the first three albums and maybe some of the EPs that I think they later collected into another release. But I, I guess I'm just pointing out that if you're only familiar with If You're Feeling Sinister and you were to buy a ticket to see Bell and Sebastian, I, I believe they're literally on tour now. I think our friend in Boston just mentioned he went to see them with his wife and had a great time. You know, you're going to get a rock band. So just saying that. Yeah. Well, so interestingly, I had this thought running through my head that these guys, to me, struck me as an English violent femmes. And it's very much a British yeah. version of it. There's no none of the American bravado, but like non-traditional percussion tracks, not a lot of that sort of four on the floor bass drum coming through. Lyrics that are, again, unabashedly uncool about awkwardness, about weird things, about, um, you know, struggling to find your place. They're a much quieter version of it, clearly. And 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 I I didn't think of that, but I really love that comparison. And also the not trying, like leaning into the strangeness and fragility of the vocal, as opposed yes. to trying to hide it through production tricks or different things. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's no no double tracking Stewart's vocals on this one. <laughs> well, they yeah. they do it every once in a while actually on the record, and it sounds awesome. And I and it makes you wonder like, oh, why didn't they just do that well, but, yeah, 100% that's, of the time. It's a production choice, right? That like it, it, it makes it, it's not like a, it's not a base level production choice. It's like a, you know, sprinkle a little flavor on there. We're going to double the vocal at some point. Absolutely. I did hear somebody that said, I forget where I read this, but basically the quote was that they lamented how Bell and Sebastian sort of got repackaged and Americanized in bands like Death Cab for Cutie. Um, and, you know, they were sort of saying, well, it, it took away some of its sort of essential Britishness that it had coming uh, coming through in these songs. And I do think that that, specifically the way that they approach melody, very British. Maybe that just comes, we talked about this before, I think it comes from the speech patterns. British people tend to have more lilting speech in them. Scottish people are unintelligible. Rob and I actually hung out in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> went to a bar and had a conversation with a very nice gentleman with very few teeth. And I'm not saying that to be a crack on the English. It's true. He had very few teeth. And I mean, I maybe caught one in five words from this guy. He was unintelligible. Yes. Well, that John Martin, he was a, a, a Scotsman and also equally unintelligible in some of the, uh, the interviews later on in his yeah. life. I just, you needed, you needed subtitles. Yeah. So I got to, well, yeah, maybe we'll, no, I don't think we put this song on the focus list, actually. The one where there's a bunch of talking over top. But what that actually reminded me of very much was the Velvet Underground. I think in another mm-hmm. way, they're a Scottish Velvet Underground. Another controversial band from the podcast. Well, their strings definitely suck, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll agree with you on that one. <laughs> Let's jump really quickly, then, into the opening track on the album, the one that Adam referenced before, Stars of Track and Field. Make a new cult every day to suit your affairs Kissing girls in English at the back of the stairs You're a honey with the following of innocent boys They never know it because you never show it You always get your way they never know it because you never show it. You always get your way. 
You and her been taking pictures of your obsessions. Cause I met a boy who went through one of your sessions. In his blue velour and silk, you liberated a boy I never rated. Now he's throwing discus from Liverpool and witness. You liberated a boy I never rated. Now he's doing business. Stars of track and field, you are. Stars of track and This is a weirdly constructed song. I'm not I'm not going to disagree with you on that, Adam. It doesn't have what I would think to be a linear build through it. Um, so you already gave me a little I bit do, of it. But yeah, yeah I, I do have a note that at 232, you're right, when he, he goes up on the melody that I can see, because I actually made a note of that, and that's what you guys are calling the peak. Uh, I made note of it. I didn't feel like it was the peak, uh, but it was cool because it also went major. But this, this to me, I kind of like took this song as a construction or, or a foreshadowing for the whole album, which for me never seemed to really take off. And I'm not saying I needed loud drums and loud guitars, but for me, it just seemed like there was no peak. It just kind of seemed like it started with uh, this uh, first track here. And it was great. For me, that was almost kind of a high watermark. And then it just kind of like, you know, cruised along. And then you got to the last song and I wanted to kill myself. So. <laughs> okay. The horse song. First of all, what is wrong with you, Adam? What the hell is wrong with you, man? Do you not like nice things? <laughs> this, the I will I will echo one of the things you said. I really like the chord choices on this song, specifically over the chorus, because basically, like the chord verses are like E A G E A D F A D A E. It's all like eh, you know. It's the chorus then does this like E to A minor. Then yeah, E to A okay. minor, then E minor to D, and it's really like oh, that's those yeah. stars of track and field. I'll give you, you that. Uh, that kind of lays mm-hmm. into that on the second time they do it. Beautiful chord choices, which I think can be said for most of the songs in this album. I think they have really good and beautiful chord choices. So you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I I agree, and that's but it's again it's it's sold in this very subtle package. I I noted that. When this, when you turn this record on and this track starts, it starts at such a low volume that you're almost mm-hmm. guaranteed to turn up the volume on your headphones at that point. It's like mastered much lower than other records. Am I crazy? Now, you're, you're, this track specifically, I had it on and then I, I turned it up to hear the beginning, and then I went to the like I don't know track five, and it was like it was to- a lot louder. So you're right. That's that's interesting that they start. Start the album as low as you can be. Maybe to your point, Rob. They, they <laughs> have everybody turn it up. They like going into the very low volume because perhaps maybe what is their biggest, most well-known song? The Boy with the Arab Strap. It's not. It's on the next record. Maybe that might be the most played song on Spotify. I'm not staring at it. I recall also does this super long fade out, but it's a fade out where they where he keeps singing new lyrics. So you're kind of like in, you're tempted to keep <laughs> Le- listening, but it goes in. so yeah. low. Like he keeps singing new lyrics all the way to the end of the fade out. And it's always been a little jarring it's, it's for an me. Andy Co- an Andy Kaufman move to be sure. A, a little bit. But so t- just to speak to the intentionality of the peak that it, we all identified, I do think they peak very specifically using using melody 
as the forefront of everything they do. And he, but he, he, they know it's the peak just to speak the intentionality of it because he lands his cleverest turn of phrase right at that moment when she's on her back and had okay. the knowledge to get into college. I thought that yeah. was the nicest little, like you, you mentioned they don't like rhymes, but that was a very purposeful mm. and cute little sure. rhyme there. Sure. She had the move, she had the speed, it went to her head. She never needed anyone to get around the track, but when she's on her back, she had the knowledge to go into college. But when she's on her back, she had the knowledge to get what she I did not like this song the first time I heard it. Over time, it has grown to be one of my more favorite songs on the album. I also think that he has a very good sense of storytelling in his lyrics without necessarily saying, there was a girl and her name was Sarah and she was really good at running track field. Like, you know, it's character driven without like, uh, but they almost obliquely define the character in the song. But I, I find it to be evocative of I almost picture somebody in my head like when I listen to a song like this I sort of picture a person in my head and I can't say that that's true for most songs you know a song like Jolene where she just goes ahead and describes what Jolene looks like through half the song like I know I I picture a Jolene in my head but I don't necessarily picture uh, I can't even think of another good female name in a song like uh, that doesn't directly describe them but anyway, I, I Valerie or Brandy, she's a fine girl. Sure. That's all I know about her, though. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah she'd I, make a good wife. I hear you. I've it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I've always felt that way about books. That your description of a person, for whatever reason, does not land in my head as a composite sketch artist thing. But if you do a good job of of getting across, you know, how the person is as a character, their actions, etc. Then I do have a mental model of them that I've created clearly in my head from reading. Totally. I, don't, I don't know if that's what you're referring to or not, but no, I, I am referring to that. It's it's not you're telling me what they look like, how tall they are, how much they weigh, what color their eyes are. You're giving me a series of actions that they take, and it it allows me to build a picture in my head. Yeah. Stuart Murdoch, though, also is a published author, right? He mm. wrote a novel, and actually, I can't even remember what the name of the freaking novel is off the top of my head. All I know is that when we went to Scotland, I put together a huge Bell and Sebastian playlist to listen to while we were driving oh, to Scotland. Little did I know that my wife was reading the book by Stuart Murdoch as we were driving around Scotland um, as well. So I think Very he's I think he's a good storyteller. I think I I, I think that that is not necessarily something that they're lauded for, but to me, they come across as a really good, yeah. really good storytellers. Yeah. I, oh, no, I, I have to agree. I like the songwriting. I don't, in Violent, now you said Violent Femmes, that's the other band I would draw a parallel to a, a little bit. Oh, maybe he's a little more direct and a less impressionistic compared to Stuart Murdoch. But I do like the songwriting. I like the lyric writing. There are these sketches of stories, and I have a, he builds up this little world in each story that I that I do quite like, and that's why that's why I kind of objected earlier to you saying he wasn't. You didn't say he wasn't clever, but that they weren't aiming for cleverness or they weren't aiming for turns of phrase. Because I think I think a lot of little turns of phrase stick out in my head from these songs, even years later. It's been years since I listened 
to this whole record back to front. I, I think when I said that there was no guile, what I was maybe trying to get across, I don't think they're trying to hide the meanings of their songs through cleverness. You know, yeah. different enough. way of going about it. But before we move on, I just want to touch on the melody over the pre-chorus. That like, you liberated a boy I never rated, and now he's throwing discus. Yeah, like, that melody is so reminiscent to me of what I think of as the classic almost pre-blues British songwriters. I, I for some for whatever reason I think of the Beatles as being pre-blues and the Rolling Stones as almost being like post-blues uh songwriters, uh, British songwriters. That it's straight it, I was thinking of the zombies, I was thinking of the Beatles when I hear melodies yeah. like that. And I crave them. That is my baseline for music appreciation is like really good melodies like that. So that's why Adam I was the most excited to hear what you thought about this album because I think it is so right in your wheelhouse of really well constructed lilting melodies maybe it's the execution that didn't get it for you I think you got to get past you got to work to get past the voice and the warbliness and well, some it, of the pr- it's funny lack of production the, the, I think the voice didn't bother me which which is odd for me I mean there were a couple spots where uh, maybe a little pitchy or something, but but it wasn't it, it wasn't obnoxious. That that's not what turned me off. I I don't know. Maybe I just need another twenty or thirty years worth of listens on this, and then I'll be where you guys are. <laughs> well, sample you could sample from the other records as well. But no, I I totally agree, Tom. That's exactly what I was thinking of too. The zombies. That's because a lot of times if you try to play these melodies on the piano, they appear very simple. They're just kind of up and down on the major scale a lot of the time, but, and yet they are so effective. Totally. Now let's go on to another one that I think has an incredibly effective melody on it. The next track on the album, which is seeing other people. I like this tune as well. It's, we're not into my favorite, what I think of as the strongest tunes on the record yet. But I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with a complaint. It, it's fine. I like it. I kind of like all their songs because to me, this band is sort of a vibe band where if I want to be, if I'm in the mood for them, most of their songs kind of do the trick. They satisfy generally, even though I do think some of the songs are standouts, of course. And I'm, I'm certain neither of these, I don't know which song I put on that mix that you've mentioned earlier tom but i know it wasn't either of these two songs but i will complain for a moment that there is a full minute of nothing happening instrumental fade at the end of this track that just feels like a mistake like they had planned on another chorus or something <laughs> there's no solo there's there's really there's nothing it just goes on for a minute of just the same vamping it's bizarre i think i just kept picturing as this when this one started out who is the guy the character who danced in peanuts during the Vince Guaraldi thing, oh, when the when the Peanuts theme would come on, this had a very Vince Guaraldi feel to it. Not their fault. Didn't Snoopy dance? Maybe I don't know. The I guy guess everybody kind of danced. Kinda danced. Yeah. yeah, maybe Linus? that's a dumb statement. <laughs> this so two things that that 
came up when I was listening to this one. This guy is good at taking a whole lot of lyrics and Tom, kind of to your point, he's able to deliver them in a way that doesn't feel forced. So this is the opposite. And I always think back to like uh, being in, being in church as a kid and you got being raised Catholic, right? Uh, there's a point in the mass where, where the, the people sing a song and it's only three notes and they might have to fit in like two lines. And so <laughs> and they walk down the street and then he came in, you know, and it's just this, this jar, this garbled mess. This guy manages to take what feels like, you know, an entire paragraph of lyrics and kind of throw them in to the to the progression and it doesn't feel forced. It's the opposite of that church thing. So I definitely appreciated that in terms of the vocal so delivery. There's so many notes in the melody, right? He's like, uh, you know, you can do a lot with it. It's like he's notes all over the place. This was also one where, uh, Rob, you talked about painting a picture. I still don't know what this is about, but it. I, I went and read the lyrics because a couple things grabbed me. And, yeah, just this odd, uh, I don't know if he's talking about sex or they're questioning their sexuality or their... The answer is yes. Pre- he's always talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay. Because it was like practicing kissing on his elbow, but then there are other <laughs> boys that were... I at least I think that's what they were saying. List one other adult male songwriter who's written a song about kissing on his elbow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is very... It really reminds me of that show, Pen 15, like middle school girls. That's... That's the vibe to me. Well, oh yeah, and I feel like I have listened to Bell and Sebastian for a long time, and I found out relatively recently that Stuart Murdoch's girlfriend at the time was the the woman on the cover of Tiger Milk, who's like breastfeeding a stuffed tiger. That was his oh. girlfriend, and I was like, oh, he's not gay. I completely got this sense because he's always talking about boys, you know, like and. But again, I, I I came to the realization that he's writing for depressed teenage girls. I really do think that's who he's writing for. Maybe he had a sister or a friend who was in that same scenario. But yeah, you know, can't understand why all the other why all the other girls are going for the new tall, elegant, rich mm-hmm. kid. Yeah, you get this the sense of also being poor. They kind of, I kind of got that sense, not necessarily from this album. There's a couple of songs on um, Tiger Milk where it's all, not only is it depressed teenage girl, but it's like depressed underclass teenage girl. You throw in just another shit sandwich on top of that. Not only are you weird and awkward, but you're poor. And yeah, I don't, but again, I don't understand why it speaks to me so well, but it really yeah, does. I, I have to say the same thing. Yeah, I was going to say, because it seems like we're harping on the teenage girl thing. Like that would be a turnoff for us, but it's really an interesting perspective <laughs> and the songs and because the songs are good i think that both the song craft and the melodies are great i'm i'm in for it man yeah another one of the like really nice chord choices over the lines were like can we please be objective because the other boys are queuing up behind is the hand over my mouth that's like b to an f sharp c sharp to a b to a b flat minor to a b flat it's just it's really nice chord choices you know speaking at speaking of the chord choices and maybe some of the production things it sounds a little like people who don't know the rules yes of songwriting exactly. making an album which is cool and that's why it, like I, don't, I can't think of anything else that really sounds like this you mentioned some of its descendants and kind of emo pop like postal service or death cab for cutie maybe but 
this is really singular to me in the musical catalog. I, I had sent in the in the text thread that these guys hate rhyming. They they have a ton of lyrics, right? And you're right, Rob. As you're saying that, it doesn't follow the standard. So it mm-hmm. m- maybe that's one of the things that threw me off if I was expecting uh, uh, something different. But I, I you know I, I can appreciate that. I think that. part of it is that a lot of these songs were written when Stewart was performing solo, and when it's just you and a guitar and your voice, the rules are a lot more optional. Then when you have and to you gotta fill three 50 minute sets, yeah. <laughs> exactly. that's where all the lyrics came from. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I got three more verses. Oh, and there's a guy we, walking down the street. He's right there. He's walking in the bar and he's ordering a drink. I feel like Tom, this has to result in me and you collaating on a top 10 Bell and Sebastian songs mix for Adam. So let's, we'll get that Absolutely. started. Absolutely. Yes. We're 100% it on. And yes. yeah, we'll share it in the notes right. too. 100%. Because there's, there's, there's some really good ones. This album there though, are is one of those albums again that is music critics will hold this album up we've talked before about how rage against the machine is one of those albums that is held up as the best mixed album of all time just flawless mixing from beginning to end this is one of those albums that it is popular to be of the opinion that this album doesn't have a bad song on it it's just good songs stacked back to back I'm not necessarily of that opinion, but I do think it's pretty darn close. So let's cut to the next song that we're going to talk about, which is the song that Rob put on the uh, the mix CD to introduce me to. It is the song Like Dylan in the Movies. Jesus kissing men like a long walk home when the music stops Take a tip from me, talk it to the park When you're on your own, it's a long walk home Well if they follow you, don't look back Like Dylan in the movies, on your own your money that they're after boy it's you so i i see this as the peak of the album you know which is a subtle peak i suppose but this is an example of a song where they used heavier <laughs> instrumentation stewart sings harmony with i think the other stewart you know the the laid back to me the laid back production and the singing style like really come into a cohesive whole on this song in particular, I think all the songs are strong. I do like the other songs we've already talked about, but to me, this feels more like a single. Not really 100% sure that was what they were going for. I think the melody's great. All, all the same compliments we've given to other stuff. And we should mention, maybe, for our audience that they're referring to the Bob Dylan tour documentary, Don't Look Back, which is a great great documentary just to watch sometime because it's was taken on bob dylan's tour when he first went electric and when he was going out and getting booed by all the folkies and stuff and he just has this oh nice attitude to everything so anyway yeah that's cool this is the this is the song on the album that i find to be the hippest if i was to say what's a hipster's favorite bell and sebastian song it's this song um not my favorite song on this album i like the song a lot 
I feel like there is one point in the song that is somewhat emblematic to me of Bell and Sebastian and their kind of approach to recording, at least on their earlier albums. And it comes in like right at 223. That point was like, you're worth the trouble and you're worth the time. But it's like (laughs) imperfect background doubling going on there. You're worth the worry, I would do the same If we all went back to another time I will love you over I will love you over I will love you If they follow you I, Tom, I literally wrote down the drop the dropout part at two twenty three where Stewart sings against himself is very Bell and Sebastian. Yeah, it is, and it, it like it works, but I don't know why. Listening back in the control room of a studio, you'd be like, "Oh, that works. Let's just keep that." I'd be like, "That's just wrong. It's just like inexplicable. Yeah. You're just singing you the wrong lines. Like you're not right. singing the right thing." <laughs> there's the on the the state that I am in off of Tiger Milk. There's a point in that song where he's singing. The, he's like harmonizing himself, and he's singing the wrong words when he's harmonizing. But like they just kept it in. Just keep it in. Why no not? Time. Awesome. No time. I don't have time. Well, they might not have. They might not have had time. This was recorded over five days, and so you know, five days for ten songs. That's that's not a ton of time. That's not not a ton of time. Yeah. Can, can we call out too on Dylan in the movies that this is the most subdued electric guitar solo I've ever heard? Because <laughs> like, then, like a weird, you know piano vamp with very few notes comes in over top of it and definitely trumps it in the mix this it's just it's bizarre <laughs> yes i noticed that the piano is really loud yeah. so the the picture on the cover of if you're feeling sinister is the girlfriend of a of a friend of Stuart murdoch's but one of the reasons that he put it on there is that she like him also suffers from chronic fatigue syndrome. And if there was an album that just really got across, I suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome, (laughs) it is definitely this album. That explains so much. That is illuminating. Was it contagious to all the other members (laughs) of the band? (laughs) The guitar player definitely caught it. There was just a carbon monoxide leak in the studio. And they were all just... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, just speaking of record album covers, I another reason I think this band is cool, I like the aesthetic that they struck right away with their album covers, where they had a very specific theme. I, I guess I like bands that, that pick a theme for their album covers and then have a whole bunch of albums and really stick with that theme, where they it's a photograph of someone who's not in the band with a certain color gel over top of it and then they just change that color and change the photograph, I think, throughout the rest of their career. Yeah, it's basically just all like DIY haircut hipster girls getting their picture taken in some like I don't care pose and uh it works yeah but it but it but I I also felt when especially when I was first listening to them that it really the the color aspect of it really imprinted on my mind like this one's red boy the arab strap is green tiger milk is that kind of shiny yellow silver whatever you want to call it i think tiger milk is actually the one that doesn't have a gel um, you're thinking. I think you're thinking of Dog on Wheels. There's uh, Tiger Milk is like just a black and white picture. Mm. 
anyway, I, I I know because I happened to look at it because it was basically the talking about Stuart Murdoch's girlfriend appearing on a couple of different album covers, one of them being Dog on Wheels and one of them being Tiger Milk. Anyway, not super important. You're right. They do pick a theme for a color for an album. They're basically you can in your head you can just make the mental handle of like, oh, that's the green album, that's the red album. That's the, I think the gold album was like, I think that's what Dear Catastrophe Waitress was, right? It's kind of like the yellowish yeah. gold color. Yeah. I, ha- I have to pay- I have to bring up that they do a reverse Hall and Oates on this, where at the very start of the song, I think 20 seconds in, they say, when the music stops and the music stops. I'm sorry, it's too early. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't earned that quirky little music break. 20 seconds in, come on. You got to make me work for it a little bit if you're going to be that they, that straightforward. They don't know the rules, Ugh. Adam. They don't know the rules. They're just scatting ah, and bebopping right. all over the place. <laughs> uh, a fair complaint, but at least they, they fulfilled the promise. That's why yeah. I like that part yes. of it. And the end of the song at 3.30, it's just a mess. Like there's two violins, maybe a cello, and they're out of they're out of uh not out of sync but they're out of tune with each other and there's like this swirling piano and it's just like the song is is good it's decent up until like the three and a half minute mark and then just the outro is just this this wormhole of out of tune notes listen i'm not i'm not here to defend the strings on this album in any way shape or form they're pretty bad or the recorder velvet underground guys (laughs) Right. The the violin player is significantly worse than the cello player. The cello player, I think, does a pretty decent job, but it's hard when you have a cello player who's like pretty close and a violin player who's yeah. less than close, and they're trying to play off of each other. It's just they, like you know. you you know from being in bands that if you're if the lead singer is out of key and your job is to harmonize with them, what do you do? Yeah, seriously. Do you sing what the do you sing what's in tone with the piano or sing what's in tone with the lead singer? Then you're both out of key making it doubly worse anyway i just sing the wrong note too so you know right. not not a, not even a complimentary wrong note just the, i'm not because right, i'm not trying it. to i'm trying to sing the right note and i just sing the wrong one anyway <laughs> you know an, another touchstone for this band because you said jeepster a bunch of times because that's the record label in the uk right that put them out yep it makes me think of that label must have been i, I assume oh. named after the t-rex yeah, song the t-rex. Jeepster. oh yeah yeah yeah, and I, I think I think to go listen to that song, definitely an, a line of influence there in terms of the 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 feminine energy rock and roll being put forward by Mark Bolin on the Electric Warrior record and on Jeepster. I think you see yeah. some of that here. I think he's 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 skankier by far than they are. Sure, yeah. um, what was like the seventies? They're like innocent, you know. They're sort of. Uh, yeah, or just discovering that sex is a thing and they're very confused by it. It's it's endearing. I don't know. Again, I wish that I listened to this stuff when I was at that age going through this sort of How old were how old were they in general? Were they all kind of the same age in nineteen what was it, ninety four you said this came out? Ninety six. Ninety six. Ninety six rather. So were they in their twenties? So let's see, Stuart Murdoch was born in sixty eight. So yeah, he's in his twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty eight twenty eight year old unemployed musician writing songs for teenage girls. <laughs> Nothing creepy about that at all. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Nothing about it. All right. We're gonna move on to the next song on the album. And I'm I'm gonna warn you ahead of time, Adam. I'm coming to you. I want a hot take on this one. This is the song Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying. Get me away from here, I'm dying 
Play me a song to set me free Nobody writes them like they used to So we'll play as well be me Here am I own now after hours Here am I own now on a bus Think of it this way You could either be successful or be us With our winning smiles and our hands With our catchy tunes or words Now a photogenic, you know We don't stand a chance Give it to me, Adam. Give me your hot take. All right. My 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 line here was this is the most Morrissey esque song and not surprisingly the most face punch inducing of all the songs on the album. Did you what? shut your fucking whore mouth? You shut your whore mouth. <laughs> this is one of the best songs of all time. I don't understand oh, what you're talking about. God, it's terrible. I think this is the best melody on the record. If I just had to single one thing out that they could be remembered for melodically, I think this is it. I understand what you mean about the sentiment being kind of cliche i suppose or marcy s although I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that maybe as someone who maybe tom and i are on the side of the fence who left our hometown right, right? had that yeah. feeling pretty <laughs> yeah, strong right yeah. <laughs> i i don't understand you adam this melody is amazing this is such a good melody the chords in the song are so great like what is it that you don't like about the song is it maudlin is that why you don't like it it could be that it's six tracks in and i'm still waiting for something that hasn't been delivered yet so by this point in the album i think i'm just getting exhausted with just the everything's just kind of just trying too hard to be cool adam that's all it is you also didn't like like, and weird al on the mix yeah you yeah pick all the weird shit i do like so i mean i listen i wasn't on the violent femmes podcast i actually don't think i've listened to that one i should go back and listen to it but i'm gonna guess you did not vote the violent femmes album on the list Whatever would make you guess that, yeah, my friend. You, just, I, you have something you against just, like just like, uh, this is why we can't have nice things. You just have something against weirdos who are just like out there doing their weirdo thing, and yet you love Weird Al. I don't understand you. You don't make any sense to me. This song is awesome. It's one of my favorite songs of all time, if I'm being honest. I love this song. Oh, wow. Um, now I feel bad. I shat, no, it's fine. I shat upon it's it. It's fine. Just shat away. The drums. I feel like the drums are impeccable on this song. That kind of like the snare rolls that they're doing with the brushes. They, bump, but that, but that, dump, but that, but that, uh, they get stuck in my head. They're really good. The, the one that happens right before the lyrics come in, every single time that I listen to the song without fail, I'm tapping that out. Bump, 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 oh, get me. Away. Anyway. But if if you ever if you look up a bouncy melody in the dictionary, this is what you get. This is probably coming up. Yeah, this sure, is, yeah, sure. this is what's coming up. And also, I think that for all the production issues that I generally have with them, they did a great job of producing this album. It was uh, of producing this particular song. Yeah. It's subtle, but it starts off with just one guitar, that kind of a jangly electric guitar, and the bass and the drums and vocals. And then right when the first chorus hits, you get an acoustic kind of picking around some chords. And then there's a third guitar that comes in, really makes it bigger. Then like about minute 50 in, there's like a vibraphone or like a glockenspiel that comes in. Yeah, I have a note about that. That's that's cool. And then at the end, I dig that. you get words that are almost never uttered next to each other. Subtle trumpet. <laughs> I really love the trumpet at the end of this song. And it's very subtle. Name another subtle trumpet wow. song. <laughs> You're right. That's a really good point. Very good point. 
It's right up there with sober trombone. <laughs> <laughs> so I've talked this song to death. I love this song. Rob, I don't know if you want to also tell Adam how dumb he is. <laughs> I would just say, no, I'm, I'm also surprised, Adam. I'm not surprised that the record was harder to get into than on, on with one week's listen, right? Because when I was listening back to it, I was trying to put myself in the mindset of someone first listening to it, you know, as I knew you would be. And I get why there's some barriers here. But I did think you would pick out some of the stronger melodies and the stronger productions like this song. And I do think it's one of these, let's just implore you that I think if you give this a few more chances, you will. You know, like it's, it's inconsistent with the rest of your taste to I, not like this, I, I feel. I totally agree with that. The, the fact that I, I came in, uh, you know, before the podcast, coming in hot, and while I had the melodies starting to, you know, weasel their way into my brain. So, yeah. You know what? You might, despite yourself, find that you cannot get them out of your head, and you will be a Bell and Sebastian fan a year from now. On our 200th episode podcast, you're going to be like, you know what, guys? I was wrong. I was absolutely. I guess it, 200 would be like a year and a half now. Hey, Siri, <laughs> set a reminder July 12th, 2023, to ask if I like Bell and Sebastian. <laughs> I like that. This That's is good. one of their most po- most played songs on Spotify. This and an aforementioned Boy with the Arab Strap so, are up there. I, I got to tell you, this whole uh, Make Adam a Bell and Sebastian Top 10 Playlist project just got a lot <laughs> less interesting to me because apparently our tastes are not intersecting in the way that I thought they were going to. Let's let's move on to the next song we're going to talk about, which I, I'm going to guess is probably going to be, we're probably going to agree on this one. This is The Boy Done Wrong Again. Boy done wrong again Hang your head in shame And cry your life away The boy done wrong again Hang your head in shame And cry your life away Are you okay now? On Saturday I was an angel shining fair You shone louder, longer You put my shine to shame Put me to shame now I must do to pay for all my crimes What is it I must do I would do it all the time Do it all the time now sure did yeah this is the worst song definitely on the right easily in my opinion. easily the worst song it was, easily, it, yeah. so 
<sighs> you had mentioned. Right, I feel better now. <laughs> Rob, you had mentioned that you thought maybe uh, it was the other Stuart, uh, Stuart David, harmonizing with uh, Stuart Murdoch before. Stuart David yep. does not have a lyric or a vocal credit on this album. Who does? Huh is the uh the guitar player stevie jackson so i'm pretty sure that's him singing the boy don't run again and i don't know if he had it in his contract that he had to get like a right. adorned vocal out front or something like that it's one of those like uh you know Stuart copeland uh or um Oh, good lord! The other guy from the police, uh, Andy Summers. Andy Summers, yes, Andy Summers yeah. situations where like I get a song on every album. Damn it, this is I get my one song. song. Yeah, no, you're right because he has a, the same guy has a song on Boy with the Arab Strap, and I think it's yep. the worst song on that yeah. record too. By far the worst song on that record. Yeah. yeah, and yet it's on the High Fidelity soundtrack. Like, what were you thinking? Can can we drop in the middle school violin solo at any point? Not only did they feel that they needed the solo, but they thought we need we need like competing, like you know the dueling guitar solos. We need like a dueling string solo. So it just sounds really, really bad. I was gonna say the the most hipster, potentially the most hipster line on the whole album. All I wanted was to sing the saddest songs. Yeah, that's Marcy in a bad way. I I agree with that one with you on that one. <laughs> I'm not defending the song. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you this song is great. <laughs> my one note on this song is the strings in this song are a mess. I don't understand. Like nobody, none of those string players are making first chair in whatever fucking high school right. they went to. They're, yeah. <laughs> For the entirety of the album, you've been getting Stuart Murdoch's voice very far mixed out front. It is just. I mean, louder than anything in the mix by a unhealthy percentage. And, you know, it is unique. It is precious, certainly. But when you hear it in contrast to, I guess, Stevie, what is it, Stevie Martin? Or no, no, Stevie, Stevie Jackson. When you hear it in contrast to Stevie Jackson's voice, you're like, Oh, this is actually a good voice. Like this is it's, it's the whole thing with when you see Olympic swimmers, you don't realize how fast they are because you don't see a normal person swimming. When you see a normal person singing and then you hear a guy with a lot of character in his voice, you're like, even if I don't necessarily get the character in his voice, even if I don't like it, it's so much more interesting than just the boring boy on wrong again, which could have been anybody. Stuart Murdoch's voice could not be replaced by just anybody and have it sound fine. So that's yeah. the one thing I'll say about this song. Well, and in case anyone's confused about my opinion, I like Stuart Murdoch's voice. I just think it takes a little bit of getting used to, especially when it's produced so nakedly. It sounds, but the fragility and the uniqueness of it has really grown on me. And uh, I honestly think he's a great vocalist. Yeah. Any other comments, Adam? Do you want to? Do you feel the song has been shat upon enough, or you want to add some more to the pile? <laughs> 
<laughs> you may you may proceed, my okay. friend. Okay, we're gonna get to the last song on the album and the last song on our focus list: Judy and the Dream of Horses. Judy wrote the saddest song. She showed it to a boy in school today. Judy, where did you go wrong? You used to make me smile when I was down. Judy was a teenage rebel. She did it with a boy when she was young. She gave herself to books and learning. She gave herself to being number one. Judy, I don't know you if you're gonna show me everything. Judy, I don't know you if you're gonna show me everything. Judy got a book at school. She went under the covers with a torch. Fell asleep till the first morning. She dreamt about the girl who stole a horse. Judy never felt so good except when she was sleeping. Judy never felt so good except when she was sleeping. Yeah. I mean, if there was a thesis for subject matter for Bell and Sebastian, I think this song is it. It's no more perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Right on the nose. Very, very on the nose. It's like he literally wandered into his little sister's room and read her diary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's very good. Oh, uh, but I actually really like this song. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. This one, aside from the the recorder uh, being played, which I assume it's the the girlfriend who's also on violin is playing the recorder. I, I actually dug this. There's the cool little trumpet thing going on in there. It's got a nice little guitar mm-hmm. thing. I, I I didn't mind this song too much, aside from the title, which just really confused I me. I feel like they really wanted a flute, and they just didn't know a flute player. So they were like, I recorder. <laughs> Anybody can pick that up, again, right? Yeah. You learn recorder in fourth grade. Here we go. We're back in the middle school band yeah. thing again. Yeah. So I don't know if it will surprise you to learn this, but this is one of their big numbers live, like big rock, rock and roll, almost peaks out a lot of energy. Really? Sing along. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which I think from this recording is a little hard to discern, but maybe you can put that. I mean, there's that together. organ in there that comes in at the end. They, they start to build it a bit. Yeah, I, th- I feel like one of the shows I went to, they might have even invited the, a bunch of the audience on stage to like dance at the end. It, it was like a closer for them almost. Hmm. All right. Adam, what I am still confused by is you said you don't understand the title of this song, whereas it's literally a song about a girl named Judy who dreams of horses. And in the song, he says, you should write a song about the dream of horses. Call it Judy and the Dream of Horses. There's nothing hidden there. It's pretty, it's pretty exact. It's pretty on the nose. All right. Point taken. Point taken. I think by this time in the album, I was so annoyed and I saw the title. I was like, well, I'm done. <laughs> I listened to it on double speed and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's an organ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I just think personally, I just think of this as kind of another Bell and Sebastian song. It's not it's it's good. It's fine. But I don't think of it as one of their better songs. It's definitely not making it to my top 10 or maybe even my top 20 list, I have to say. I had a note just overall on the album that there were some synth parts that crept their way 
into the songs, I wanted to get your opinions because it felt totally out of place and didn't. I didn't feel it was very additive. Mm. There were I, maybe two or three songs where everything's acoustic and violins and recorders, and then there was this weird like synth thing. I was like, "What the hell is going on? What are you, what What was your take on the weird synth drop-ins?" Well, being someone who is not familiar with the Bell and Sebastian catalog, on their first album, Tiger Milk. They have a song called Electronic Renaissance, which is basically like a synth pop dance song. And so it is, it wasn't so this surprising is not that yeah. far out, out yeah. outside their realm of possibility. Got it. Okay. And then on the, on the follow-up record, Sleep the Clock Around has a lot of synth on it too. And that's another one of their big live numbers, I would say. Rock and roll kind of live numbers. So yeah, it's not, it wasn't surprising to me either. I, I will say the, one of the things that kind of bumped me on this and, We've been talking about it the whole time, but the, the mixing decisions on this just do seem really strange. Maybe they were working with students. Maybe they didn't know the rules. And I think in a lot of places, not knowing the rules if it, in terms of songwriting or melody or other things, lyric writing, you know, they pay dividends. But with the mix, it does feel, I said at the top, felt haphazard. Why is the acoustic guitar in this song panned right and his voice is panned left? Or per- perhaps it's the reverse, but it just, it really pulls me away from thinking that it's just a guy with a guitar. Like, it's, it just seems odd. It just seems like they place things in the spectrum, the pan spectrum, just totally randomly sometimes. We've talked about, about that before. It really makes it hard to gel when they're literally on either side of my head. And like you see, in an album that is being produced in a way where the most charitable read is that you were trying to go for everybody sitting in a room and playing and you're just a spectator to that hard panning mixing decisions are odd it doesn't feel natural you're right yeah yeah because whether it's Stuart Stuart Murdoch or not playing that guitar and I I believe he does play guitar at least sometimes in the band it's irrelevant right that's what you are expecting it to sound like when the song's opening with one voice and one yeah so anybody else notice the completely botched chord hit at 44 seconds in it's the first time they do that horses the first chord hit he just misses it he doesn't hit anything you can tell he tries to kind of hit something and then he just doesn't hit anything comes in the, yeah. the next beat yeah, yeah. to be a number one Judy, I don't know you if you're gonna show me. <laughs> it's a really bad miss, and it's so effing punchable. Like, just knowing the mechanics of how the studio works, you could have punched yeah. that so easily. I don't know why they didn't do it. I understand maybe you're under some kind of time crunch, but that's the kind of thing where you get done the take, and you're like, hey, I missed that first hit. Can we just roll it back right now? And I'm just going to go, boom. While you're still in the room. That's it. Right, it would right. take you 20 <laughs> seconds at most. I don't understand it. And it's not their yeah. first time in the studio. You think, because admittedly, when it's your first time, you learn some of those lessons the hard way. But this is, they've had re- very recent experience like this. Like I said, five months ago, they put out apparently another seminal must-hear album. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, so... We are going to bring it on home. Let's go around the horn. I am very interested to hear from Adam, basically. Adam, what do you vote? (laughs) Does this make it to the list or not? Brand new listen for me, even though some of these melodies are earworms. I'm going to pass on this one, but I'll, I'll put a little caveat on that, is that 
in six months or eight months will come back and see if I regret my decision of no. Mm. All right. All right, Rob, bring it to me. Yeah, I think this is an excellent band. I'm super glad they entered my life. And if you have to pick one of their records, at least one, I think this is reasonably the first one. I think it has the best collection of their songs and their sound. To say that it is underproduced is quite an understatement, but... Like, sometimes it feels like someone just walked past the studio with a microphone or something. <laughs> but it's, I'd be for, the, for all the reasons we said, the song craft, the melodies, it is absolutely a must listen. Do it. Yeah, so this is Tom. I'm going to bring it on home with another yes vote. The charm on this album is undeniable to me. I find it charming. I find it engaging. I find it interesting. And I find it kind of different. Um, it's not the normal type of music that I listen to, but those melodies, I just, I can't get over how well constructed those melodies are. They are undeniable. And I find myself humming them and singing them all the time. I have listened to this album probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40 or 50 times in my life. I will probably continue to listen to it a couple of times a year for the rest of my life. And I think everyone else should too. It's a damn good album. So there you have it. Two out of three on the list. Sorry, Adam. Bell and Sebastian, congratulations. We didn't even get a chance to mention that they're named after like an obscure French television show. And they, of course, of course they are. And they did that. Like, why wouldn't they? They did the Steely Dan move where they picked two names in their band name that do not refer to anyone in the band at all. It's very confusing. Of course, yes. (laughs) But you do kind of always get the sense that he is Sebastian the nerdy kind of boy who's friends with the awkward teenage girl that, you know, is trying to support her, but he also probably secretly has a crush on her, but she doesn't know if she likes him or if she even likes guys in general. That's the sense that I've always gotten from them. But they also have a song about Belle and Sebastian, right? They they do, yeah. They do. And I think in the I think in the T V show it's named after it's about a dog and a boy. Yeah. I wanna say. Yeah. And this is why my palate cleanser for this week was System of a Down. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, seriously. Right. <laughs> Our takedown of System of a Down, or yeah, are you right. actually listening to System Yes, I just re-listened to the episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I, listen, I can't fault you for that. Everybody should be re-listening to these episodes four or five or six times. <laughs> That's what you want to do. You want it on loop. If you liked what we had to say... There is a way that you can let us know. 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Always love to hear from people who have differing opinions from us, more context for an album. Uh, Please reach out to us and let us know. If you like what we're doing, you can tell a friend. We would love that. You subscribe to our podcast. Get those alerts every time a new one drops into uh, the, uh, the old appages there i don't know what why i use the word appages it's clearly not a word (laughs) hey man my phone dings every monday so that i can listen to myself talk well that sounds give us a review we'd also love a review i i don't know why a review helps but it helps a lot to get the word out there and you know visibility in general so if you like what we're doing help us out tell a friend subscribe write a review write us an email always love to hear from you only one thing left for us to do dear listeners and that is to bust out the old albinator and find out what we are going to be listening to next week so 
Drum roll, please. Without any further ado, we will be listening to the album Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. I'm not familiar with that at all. Nor am I. Nor am I. I I'm, I've, I've at least heard of Fleetwood Mac. I'm very excited about this. Sure. That should be cool. I, I'm really curious as to if this is pre or post rumors. Didn't they all like hate hmm. each other because they were like a web of affairs and infidelity and maybe break up after rumors? I don't know. During, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, this is one of those bands that's been through a lot of incarnations, though. Like they had a whole, the reason they're called Fleetwood Mac is because they had a whole pre Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham period as a band hmm. what were they called then did, or did no they no what i mean name? is they're named after the two the Mick only Fleetwood two consistent and, uh, yeah. members oh, of the band yeah, yeah. but ah yeah. Oh, yeah yeah okay. they actually are the first they originally recorded the song black magic woman that's a fun fact really what really yeah, santana's version is a cover of a fleetwood mac song but it's like this whole other but fleetwood mac are known as kind of rumors stevie nicks Lindsey buckingham fleetwood mac because that's but they were this other kind of band. Jesus Christ. Wow. Okay, so we are kind of entering into Bee Gees territory. This is just super cursory on my part, but it looks like Tusk is the album after Rumors and could potentially be their 15th album. Oh, golly. Yeah. Wow. Because they have 7936 seven, South Roads, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, Mr. Wonderful, The Pious Bird of Good Omen, then play on Blues Jam in Chicago's Volumes 1 and 2, Kiln House, the original Fleetwood Mac, Future Games, Bear Trees, Penguin, Mystery to Me, Heroes Are Hard to Find, then Rumors, and then Tusk. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, because I think, I believe Rumors is the first one with Stevie Nicks, and then they, they, had, they had huge hits, but they had been around for a long time, obviously. Apparently so. So maybe we're going to get like another uh, New York mining disaster of 1920. I was going to say, it's a, it's a concept album about poaching in yeah. Africa or Tusk. I don't know. <laughs> Good Lord. Stupid. Sorry. Uh, well, I'm excited for that, actually. that that I, I remember greatly loving trashing the Bee Gees, uh, Trafalgar, as a, just a horrendous piece of dog shit. And so we'll see if Fleetwood Mac is going to follow suit or follow up a, an absolute undeniable banger in Rumors with another banger in Tusk. Who knows? But you know who will know next week? All of you listeners, because you're going to come back and listen to our <laughs> podcast. That's right. Segways. So, well played, sir. Until next week, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Rob. A boosh. <laughs> <laughs>